about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. Today we are discussing paper money and how money worked in early America with Dr. Joshua Greenberg. Dr. Greenberg is the author of uh, Banknotes and Shin Plasters, The Rage for Paper Money in the Early Republic, and he's going to talk to us about the evolution of paper money during the 18th and 19th centuries. Welcome, Josh. Hello, Sue. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I guess we should start out with kind of the beginning of the nation. And uh, I'm kind of curious. So how did money, how did money like change with the revolution? Um, you know, we, we were part of England. Um, what do we do to, to adopt our own, our own form? Um, well, during the, the colonial era, uh, England puts a lot of, or attempts to put a lot of restrictions on paper money. There had been attempts to issue paper money in the colonies going all the way back to the, the very late 1600s, actually. Uh, but in the, in the mid-1700s, uh, there are uh, multiple acts of parliament attempting to curtail um, colonies from issuing their own paper money uh, in order, you know, to re- both regulate the currency and the currency flow as part of a mercantile system, but especially to have England, you know, controlling who was issuing money and, and, you know, to reserve that power for themselves Uh, with the, you know, the 1770s and the outbreak of war, what we see is a move by both the continental Congress and individual, individual states, new individual states to issue their own paper currency. Uh, Obviously paying for war is a very expensive thing. Uh, It's a theme both in the revolutionary war era, as well as, you know, later in the Civil War, you'll see dramatic changes, um, you know, do, uh, in the way paper money is issued because of this. And so what happens is just a, a you know, a, a massive amount of new paper money comes into circulation during the 1770s. The Continental Congress issues hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, as well as individual states uh, issuing, you know, what amount to millions of dollars, uh, much of it you know, is actually um, in shillings and pounds. Uh, but, you know, that that money, uh, you know, sort of comes onto the scene and, and just radically changes the landscape, of, you know, for, for how the economy looks. Uh, what you'll see is that, you know, with the, you know, the end of the revolution, uh, you know, one of the big pressing questions, both in the, the sort of Articles of Confederation era and then afterward, is you know who is going to have the power to issue money? Uh, this becomes a, you know a big question uh, when it comes to to drafting the Constitution as well. Um, it, you know if I can sort of go on further from there, just to talk about that that uh, you know what happens in that process um, during the the Articles of Confederation era, uh, individual states retain that ability to issue their own paper. Uh, and, you know, not every state is issuing paper and, and not all of them that do issue a lot of paper. But there's a lot of debt after the war. A lot of states have a lot of debt. Um, taxes are are going up. And in order to supply a currency, uh, you know, for those account economies to run, certain states start issuing massive amounts of paper currency. Other states trying to be more conservative uh, choose not to do this. 
And sort of both decisions cause havoc in, in the economy. Uh, states that don't issue money, like Massachusetts, um, run into the problem of their people not being able to pay taxes. You know, one of the outcomes of this is something like Shays Rebellion, uh, where, you know, finding the, the uh, you know, enough currency to pay your taxes becomes a very difficult thing. In neighboring Rhode Island, massive amounts of paper currency are issued by the government there under, you know, pressure from the population looking for, uh, you know, more currency. But then that currency is quickly devalued because there's so much of it uh, that, you know, it's, it's only worth about eight cents on the dollar. Uh, and so that causes a host of other problems. So it's not like a, a north-south thing or a small state, large state. It's just kind of random who releases the money? Um, yeah, it's, it's not north-south. It's not big and small. It's, it more has to do with really which states have, um, you know, either creditors or debtors, creditors or debtors uh, with the ability to get their agenda into uh, into government practice. Um, you know, some states, as I said, you know, that, that decide to issue money are doing so for, for sort of debt relief in one form or another. Um, and, and so that can cause, you know, the, the sort of mass outbreak. But, you know, say, states down south, uh, you know, even with less debt, some, some of them wind up issuing a lot of money too. Um, you know, it's somewhat random um, and, and has a lot to do with sort of the local politics of individual states and, and those, uh, you know, those legislators. Uh, but what the upshot of this is that when it comes to the, you know, the, the you know, sort of Congress, um, you know, a meeting um, during the decision to sort of, um, you know, create a new constitution, uh, sorry, the convention meeting when, when it's about creating a new constitution, this question of who's going to have the power to issue money, um, you know, becomes front and center. There's a huge debate over it. Um, you know, it winds up being, uh, you know, sort of part of you know, Article One, Section Ten, is the is the, this language saying that you know only the federal government basically is going to retain the right to coin money, right? No state shall have this power to to, to sort of coin money uh, is written right into the Constitution, and so this this uh, you know this individual state right to 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 uh, print up its own money uh, goes away. Uh, with the, the passage of the new constitution. Um, and, you know, the workaround for this is that if states wind up chartering banks, those banks can issue money. And so what you see sort of coming out of the new constitutional era uh, is the beginning of a wave of new banks. And those banks have the ability to issue credit and, um, you know, and print up their own banknotes. Uh, it's not technically the state doing it because they've chartered this, or, you know, this this institution to do it for them. So, like the Washington administration and Adams, and you know, early on, what does what does the government do? Like how how is monetary systems set up? Well, th this is all happening on multiple levels. So, you know, a lot of this, as I said, is sort of pushed down to the states in terms of states chartering their own their own banks and there's a, there's a relatively quick rise in the number of banks you know uh you know where's the first bank is is you know the bank of north america just starting out in 1782 by the time you get to you know the year 1800 you're already up to 24 banks nationwide um the numbers will sort of quickly rise from there the other answer to this is the creation of the bank of the united states uh you know this is this is what the the federal government's role in all of this is through the Bank of the United States. And 
you know, and, and obviously there, there will wind up being two different uh, banks in the United States. And one of their roles is to oversee or at least to try to uh, keep in check the activities of these uh, state uh, chartered banks. You know, state chartered banks um, are all governed by different regulations. Every state has its own regulations in terms of, you know, what it takes to get the charter, how much money that the, the bank might have to have in its vault or, you know, uh, sort of in reserve. And, and then the way it would happen is that they would issue uh, notes. And I can talk a little bit more about that later about, you know, how and, and, and why that happens. But those notes, um, are, are redeemable, meaning that if you have a, a note from a state chartered bank, you can bring it back to that bank and redeem it for, uh, you know, gold and silver for, for coin. Uh, this process, you know, works differently in different states because different states have, have, uh, sort of, uh, either more strict or looser regulations on how much paper currency a bank is allowed to release based on what it has in the vault. Um, you know, maybe you're allowed to release uh, two times uh, the amount of coin you have in the vault, maybe three times, maybe even more than that. And, you know, the, these differences mean both larger paper money circulations, uh, but also potentially more danger if banks are issuing well in excess of what they have in reserve. And one of the roles of the Bank of the United States is to try and keep a lid on that process to sort of make sure that banks aren't going wild with their, their banknote issues. Um, because the Bank of the United States has branches, uh, you know, branches in different states, it does have an ability to sort of keep an eye on these, these uh, banks. And, you know, the way it does this is that if, if you see a bank, if you're the Bank of the United States and you see a bank doing things uh, that you don't like, you know, issuing way too many banknotes that that potentially are inflationary or potentially sort of dangerous. Uh, what you can do is try to gather a whole bunch of those up if you're the Bank of the United States, and then en masse go and redeem them at the local bank. And very quickly, uh, either doing this or the threat of doing this uh, will keep the bank in check. And so that's sort of right. the role of the Bank of the United States. So, like, I know you know we're entering a you know, the market revolution and people are starting to get, you know, it's, it's less of a barter based economy. So if, you know, you're working in 1810, 1820, how do you get paid if, if everyone's issuing their own, own money? Um, yeah. And, and, you know, this varies a lot uh, based on where you are, uh, you know, certainly areas with more banks and larger circulation of, of paper money early on, you know, eastern seaboard uh, cities, uh, even, you know, sort of market towns, they're going to be, you know, earlier to adopt, uh, you know, a widespread paper money economy. But in my opinion, you know, relatively quickly in, in the 19th century, paper money sort of gets everywhere. Um, you know, certainly by the 18 teens and 20s, uh, paper money is all over uh, the nation. And so, you know, your pay, if you're, uh, you know, an artisan or, or a worker of that sort, you know, usually the way it works is that, uh, you know, you get paid once a week on, on Saturday night, right? This is sort of a standard practice, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in, in a city or, or, or a small town, right? Uh, your boss, uh, Saturday morning, goes to what is called, a mo- you know, a, a money market literally a place to buy money uh, because with the circulation of banknotes as banknotes you know move around their value fluctuates and we can talk more about this in a second 
Uh, but so your boss would go to a place, he would, in a sense, buy his payroll in cash, um, hopefully at a discount for the boss. He's trying to minimize the amount of money it costs him to pay payroll, uh, which is interesting to think about. Uh, and then Saturday night, he would distribute that money. And then if you're a worker, uh, you know, you take that money and then you're going to try to do the best you can based on the quality of that money in order to buy the things that you need. Um, you know, for most places, uh, you know, they, you know, if you're a business, if you're a, a merchant, if you're a grocer, uh, you know, you're dealing with these, these notes. If they're, you know, good quality notes, you know, that's great. And you can have a relatively smooth transaction. Uh, if they're not good quality notes, it gets more complicated, uh, you know, from there. And, uh, you know, for individuals trying to, to, you know, buy and sell things for people trying to use that payroll, uh, what you get is a lot of, you know, in a sense, difficulty trying to understand what the quality of the money that you were just paid is, and then figuring out how to how to best use that. Um, you know, if, if I can give you an example, uh, you know, a more specific example, um, you know, if you live in New York City and you are paid with a, a banknote from New York City, that's a local note. It, it's going to be easy for you to take that note, you know, back to the local institution that issued it. And therefore, uh, that note will circulate at face value. It's a note circulating locally. It's easy to take it back for redemption in gold or silver. It circulates at its face value at say a dollar or five dollars, whatever the face value of the note is. Could be two or three dollars, right? If every bank is issuing its own money, they get to choose the denomination as well. The problem arises if the banknote comes from far away. I mean, if the bank that issued it is in Michigan, in, in, you know, in my book, I, I talk a lot about the town of Monroe, Michigan. It's a place where there's a lot of bad banks issuing a lot of bad money and it circulates all over the country. And if you're in New York City and you get a note from Monroe, Michigan, um, you know, you're not going to be able to get back to Monroe, Michigan to trade that note in and redeem it for its cash value. Uh, in gold and silver. So then the question arises, well, what is that note worth? Uh, what kind of confidence do I have in the bank that issued it? If it's a, a bank from far away and I don't really know, you know much about that institution, and then the cost of getting back there also you know, determines part of it. So does that mean I'm going to take 1%, 2%, 10% of the value of that note and take it off of the, you know, the transaction? And so what it means is that if you try to buy something with one of these notes, uh, every transaction then has sort of multiple steps. You have to determine the cost of the good or service that you're purchasing, and then you have to determine the value of the money that you have in your hand off of face value. Uh, this is a complicated procedure, and often it's sort of intertwined, right? Uh, a bank uh, note might only get you, you know, 30 or uh, you know, or, or a 30 or 40 percent discount if it's a bad note. And so you have to really think, well, how do I want to use this thing? So a dollar is not a dollar. Well, a dollar can be a dollar, but <laughs> it doesn't have to be a dollar. And, and this is the this is the complicated nature of this system. Uh, you know, as I said, if I'm using a local note, it's a dollar is a dollar. And that happens plenty of you know times. But if that dollar's from three states away and from a bank that I don't know anything about, it's certainly not going to be a dollar. It could be you know, 90 cents or 85 cents or whatever it is. And so then you have to think, well, you know, I want to get rid of that note because it's probably not a good note. But then I also have to remember, well, 
how did I get paid that note? I mean, was I given that note with the with the the understanding that it was worth a dollar, or did I get that note in a transaction where we had already established it was worth eighty five cents? And if in that scenario, if I can give it to someone else at ninety cents, I've actually made five cents profit. Uh, so there's a, you know unbelievable opportunity for manipulation in this system, uh, arbitrage. You know, basically buying and selling and using these notes where the value is fluctuating. Um, literal literal money markets spring up for just this reason. Um, most individual people aren't, you know, sort of, uh, you know, trying to make that much money off of it. But the system is uh, is there. But everyone's kind of involved in the process, right? I mean, like, so, you know, I mean, not at the same level, but they're they're kind of responsible for negotiating, I guess, when they go buy something. Definitely, and as you said, not at the same level, right? There is an asymmetry to the amount of monetary information that is, uh, you know, sort of being used in this system. Certain people, you know, professionals who do this for a living through banks as, you know, as, as money brokers, uh, they're certainly benefiting a lot more from this system and the way you can manipulate and move the money around. Other people are just constantly trying to, you know, gain enough information to catch up and to, to not feel like every transaction is costing them. Um, but it's a complicated system. And, and, and as you said, no matter who you are, you're, you're involved in, in, in trying to, to do the best that you can. And, you know, this is both based on the information you can accumulate, but also based on your demographic background. You know, if you are a woman or uh, uh, an, an enslaved person that is, you know, using paper money in, in a market setting, you're not going to necessarily have the sort of you know, political or, or, or demographic, you know, sort of place in order to, you know, sort of maybe get the better deal in that transaction, you know, if you have the opportunity. And so it becomes very complicated. So what's a shin plaster? Shin plasters are paper money that are issued by non-bank entities. And so what does this mean? It could be a merchant uh, issuing his own uh, currency. It could be a corporation, like especially a railroad company, issuing their own currency. It could also be a municipal government. You know, local, not state, but local um, uh, governments sometimes issue their own currency. Uh, you know, and, and there's some combination of this money uh, circulating really all the time, but in, in particular moments there's a lot more shin plasters in circulation. And what happens is, especially in those moments when the banking system is breaking down and and can't really handle um, the running of the economy, especially during financial panics, uh, the panic of 1819, the panic of 1837, uh, or moments when, you know, the just the the paper money system is broken down a little during the, the War of 1812, um, there's no, uh, you know, there's no Bank of the United States during the War of 1812, but it's a war. And so there's all these currency needs. And then in the early days of the Civil War as well. And so in these particular moments, you see a, a huge sort of need for especially small denomination currency with not enough, um, you know, coin in circulation. And the banking system is unable to handle the load, especially for notes in, as I said, very small denominations, you know, under a dollar. And so shin plasters really feel, fill that void, which is, um, you know, making change um, locally uh, at a time when there's not other change circulating. And sometimes because of this and the, the need in the community, 
these shin plasters are legal, you know, instruments, right? They're, they're issued, uh, you know, legally within the sort of, uh, you know, the local or state economy. Other times, while they are filling a, a, a need, they're not issued legally. And so they become even more complicated when trying to determine, you know, how do you use them and, and where can you use them, right? They're not from chartered banks. Uh, they're, you know, they're from the barber or the, you know, the butcher around the corner, and is that a note I want to take or is that a note I have to take? Uh, and if so, you know, can I really get face value? I mean, ironically, you might be able to get better face value on a shin plaster if it's from a local merchant that you know uh, than from a legal out-of-town or out-of-state banknote uh, from a bank you don't. So last summer I was at um, – I went to a museum – and the African American Museum in Dallas, and they had um, an exhibit of of paper money. And you know, I was, I kind of knew it didn't look like what we have now, but I was amazed at the images and uh, ideas that they used. And and why was this? Why didn't they just you know do a portrait? <laughs> well, they sometimes they do, and and you know, yeah. you're right. They they, all, they look different, right? They're you know, if there are over the course of the era that we're talking about, you know, between the 1780s and the 1860s, you know, around 2000 different banks uh, at one time or another that that are that are, are started, um, you know, they, they issue thousands and thousands, maybe as many as 10,000 unique notes circulating in this era. And that doesn't even count all the shin plasters. Um, they, they look different for a couple of reasons. One is if you're issuing a banknote, you usually want it to stay in circulation as long as possible. Uh, the way banknotes are issued is that uh, a bank, primarily a bank will issue a loan. Uh, they issue a loan and the loan is made in notes that they have, uh, you know, that they have printed themselves. Because of the terms of the way loans work, and I'll get back to the, the images on the notes in just a second, but this sort of, uh, um, you know, makes sense to understand. The way that loans worked, the terms of loans back then is that the interest was paid in advance and then they were relatively short-term loans. So as an example, if you took a 90-day loan, which was pretty standard, for $1,000, you're a merchant, you get a $1,000 90-day loan at 6%, which is, again, these very standard terms. The bank would give you $985, right? The interest was paid up front you get $985. At the end of 90 days, you have to pay back $1,000. That may or may not be in the actual notes from that bank. They, they, you could potentially do it from other banks, um, depending on the value of those notes. And that gets complicated. But you, you have 90 days. And in that 90 days, if any of those notes in circulation come back to the bank, Remember, they're circulating. If they come back to the bank and the bank is forced to pay out gold and silver on that money, they've lost, uh, you know, that money because the loan hasn't been repaid yet, and they're potentially, you know, uh, you know, having to pay out money off of it. So, for the bank, at a minimum, they want the notes to circulate as long as possible, certainly longer than the terms of the loan that initially, um, you know, issued them. How do you get something to circulate as long as possible? Well, there are different theories on this and, and different banks have different ideas about what to make their banknotes look like in order to encourage a longer circulation. Do you want the note to be 
uh, beautiful, you know, have a dramatic vignette, something that, you know, the public will look at and say, wow, that's really nice. I, I think that's a great looking note. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this landscape, you know, image that's on there. Um, you know, that's something that, that, you know, you might put on there and maybe it encourages people to sort of use it because they think, well, that's a really nice looking note. Um, you know, I have confidence in this note because it's so nice looking. Therefore, I'm going to sort of transfer my confidence onto the bank that issued it. Uh, another option is, you know, when deciding what your note's going to look like, maybe you want to use it as a bit of an advertising campaign. A lot of the same people that were on uh, the boards of banks were also, you know, locally involved in the, the economy in one form or another, maybe, uh, you know, as owners of factories or, or large scale landowners or something like that. And so the banknote becomes a place where you can advertise local economic production. Uh, you see this a lot, uh, whether it's, you know, lumberjacks appearing on banks in, you know, in, in uh, Minnesota or Maine. Um, it could be, uh, you know, a, an image of whaling uh, on a note, you know, from New England somewhere. Uh, you also see uh, images, you know, in the mountains of, of mining and things like that. Certainly different types of farming uh, in, in different places. And then especially across the South, images of enslaved individuals, uh, you know, maybe as part of the cotton uh, you know, industry. Right. And so all these, uh, you know, different types of images in one way or another are promoting a vision of flourishing local economic production. Uh, this this acts to both sort of maybe put an interesting or uh, you know attractive vignette on the note again, saying saying oh this looks nice, but also send a separate message, which is well the the local economy of this area must be doing well. I'm seeing you know proof of it on the note itself. Therefore, if the economy is good. I assume this bank must be very healthy, right? This is another way of, of trying to promote your note. Um, then there's a whole other theory if you sort of go to the other side of things, which is to say, well, we're not going to care about the, the vignettes we're putting on a note. We're going to use really sophisticated lathe work to put designs on our notes, um, you know, it's not, it doesn't matter. You don't need a, a, you know, a picture of a person or a picture of, you know, a scene. What you need are complicated, um, you know, designs and line drawings, uh, which make the note look sophisticated because of the complexity of the engraving that's being done on it, but also act, um, as, uh, a barrier toward counterfeiting, uh, which, you know, again, we, we'll probably talk about in just a moment, uh, which is always a problem. Uh, with all this different paper money in circulation. So you have all these different theories on some level about how you can increase the circulation of your notes. Do you want it to make, make it look unusual and unique and something that, you know, people want to sort of hold on to? Or do you want to make it look somewhat generic, right? You know, if you have a note that looks a lot like other notes, and your bank is not so great, maybe people will sort of give it a pass and allow it to keep circulating because they, you know, they can't really identify that it's from your questionable bank. It just looks like other banks. And so maybe you do throw a portrait on there and maybe you do put a little bit of a design, but you do it in somewhat of a generic way. Random farmer, a picture of a cherub, uh, you know, maybe you throw George Washington on there. These are all things that sort of are, you know, generic enough. Uh, that, that they, that, you know, that they can make a note look like anything else. Um, by the time you get a little later into the, 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 the chronology of these banknotes, you know, larger banknote engraving firms, uh, exist. 
And so if you are a bank and you go to a banknote firm and say, well, I need to buy, you know, $500,000 or, you know, that's a way too much, but $50,000 uh, in, in currency, um, I actually want my production costs to be low. And so mm-hmm. how, how do I keep the production costs of the money down? I reuse images that the banknote engraver has already made for other notes uh, and then just pop them onto my notes. And so something that started out as a, you know, a, a, a sort of a fancy vignette that popped up on a note gets reused several times. And then even the context of it might not make any sense anymore, but it's much cheaper for the bank to use a note like that. Um, so there's all these different things that go into the sort of the, the bank note uh, visual theory uh, behind what the note's going to look like. And sometimes it's about, um, you know, really, um, maximizing circulation and other times it's just, well, what can I get the cheapest? <laughs> so uh, as you mentioned, I am kind of curious, how, how did things avoid counterfeit? You know, if they're all looking different. Uh, the, the simple answer is that they don't very well. Um, there are, there are constant attempts to make banknotes, uh, you know, harder to counterfeit, but there's a massive amount of counterfeiting. Uh, you know, again, the, it's hard to o- always figure this out, but the estimates are by the time you get to the 1850s, you know, maybe 40% of the notes in circulation could be counterfeit at any particular time, maybe more, maybe less. And, you know, what happens is that there are uh, both on the notes themselves, uh, the introduction of color or, uh, you know, smaller sort of design technologies put in place to try and, dis- and sort of dissuade counterfeiting. Uh, but it's very difficult to do with so many notes coming out and so many of them, as I said, reusing images or reusing the style of their text. Um, there are newspapers that are created to try and help deal with this problem. Uh, they're called counterfeit detectors. And so, you know, they're basically newspapers that are printed up where if you were, say, a merchant and someone tried to hand you a note, you could take the note over to the newspaper, sort of read through the listings in the newspaper and see, well, is this note one that, you know, we know as the public is being counterfeited readily? Um, are there any, you know, tips from in the newspaper about what I should look for to determine whether it's a good note or a bad note? Um, but this is only so successful. I mean, you imagine having to flip through an entire newspaper every time someone hands you a note. This is not the most efficient way, uh, you know, to sort of to govern your economy. Uh, but it, 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 you know, it is something that, that does happen. Uh, these types of notes or these newspapers are also then combined, uh, sort of to get back to our earlier com- uh, conversation, are combined with what are called banknote tables, right? Th- these are, are tables of information which tell you local, uh, uh, local rates uh, that, the, that the notes are circulating at, what the discounts are. And so you can put these together into one newspaper that tells you what are the current rates on exchange and what are counterfeits. And, and you know, and, and you get several pages of very vital information um, if you have access to the newspaper at the particular moment you need it. And it happens to have current information. Uh, but there's a constant fight going on between counterfeiters uh, who also get these copies of these newspapers so they know what information is out there uh, and banknote producers who are, are trying their best to you know not get counterfeited so when did when did the monetary system become modern like what we have today you know I assumed it was during the Civil War but apparently not uh, the system changes dramatically during the Civil War but it doesn't become modern. Uh, in, in, you know, the Federal Reserve system as, as we, you know, have it today, uh, and really until the 1930s. But what happens during the Civil War is 
is significant uh, and, and really important. The, uh, the system that we've been talking about, the state banknote system, breaks down. Uh, it, it both can't handle the volume of, of money needed to, to you know, prosecute the war from the government's perspective. And also, um, you know, there's a lot of hoarding of gold and silver going on. If you're a bank, you don't want to start paying out gold and silver uh, when everyone wants to hold on to their, uh, their coins. Uh, so the federal government has to step in. And so during the Civil War, there's two different routes that the, the federal government takes in order to, um, you know, sort of deal with the paper money system and solve the, the wartime uh, needs that they have. For, the first thing is that they start to issue their own paper money, uh, and it goes through a couple of different iterations. Um, but the upshot of this is that by 1862, uh, there's the passage of something called the Legal Tender Act, uh, which creates what we usually refer to as greenbacks. Uh, these are uh, notes issued by the federal government. Uh, they have a unique green color, uh, which is why they get the nickname greenbacks. And uh, they are legal tender, meaning that they, you know, they, they are sort of meant to be accepted, right? They, they, there's, they're sort of backed by the federal government and they are accepted um, you know, sort of across the economy, at least that's what the law says, you know, these earlier state banknotes that we've been talking about, they're not legal tender. You don't technically have to accept one, um, and, you know, unless your boss is handing it to you on a Saturday night, which it's difficult to get out of that. Um, but, you know, part of the complicated nature of the system is that, uh, you know, they're not, you know, backed by the, the federal government in this way. Uh, and so with the introduction of these greenbacks during the Civil War, and, you know, there's there's really a tremendous hundreds of millions of dollars of them printed up, um, that, you know, that creates a, ver- a sort of a new and very different type of note that you have to sort of then convince the public to accept. Uh, but those stay in circulation, uh, you know, into the 20th century. The other route that the government takes in order to deal with this, you know, sort of bank system that's been breaking down is that they pass a a couple of pieces of legislation in 1863 and 64, which try to unite these banks together into uh, one umbrella system. Uh, The national bank system replaces the state bank system. And so what you get in return are not 10,000 different types of banknotes circulating, but you get... Um, individually branded, you know, sort of locally branded by the branch uh, or by the by the, the local bank, uh, notes that all look the same. All one dollar bills look alike under the national banknote system, uh, but they're branded with the, you know the individual national bank that issued it. Uh, what this means is that you know ten thousand different types of vignettes and images and all of the complexity and all of these different notes. Um, really get reduced down to just a small handful uh, during the Civil War. And the uniformity and, you know, in theory, the the either uh, legal tender quality or at least the re- universal redeemability of these notes uh, radically changes the amount of information that the public needs to understand the system, right? If you just have a couple of different types of notes and they're uniform nationally uh, in terms of their value, well, then you don't have to spend so much time trying to accumulate all that information to, you know, make every transaction so complicated. Uh, this system persists into the early 20th century. Uh, eventually, the Federal Reserve will be created in the, the you know, 19 teens. And then by the 1930s, these, um, you know, Civil War type uh, notes get replaced by the Federal Reserve System, which is what, you know, or Federal Reserve Note, which is what we have today. So I ask all of our guests um, to help us kind of contextualize um, the past by talking sort of more in modern terms. 
And so imagine for a moment, you know, social media existed in 1810, 1820. Um, what kind of hashtags would people have used to talk about money? Well, I, you know, as I, as I mentioned, um, monetary information is really key to, to navigating this system. And so I could imagine that people would use, you know, different types of hashtags that would try to um, share the information that they have. If you had counterfeit notes, you know, hashtag counterfeit, uh, I could imagine would, would be uh, one that you'd want to broadcast to let people know what bad notes were out there, sort of a social media version of a counterfeit detector. Um, the other thing I could really see is that there are, there's another type of institution I hadn't mentioned yet um, that at the time is referred to as a wildcat bank. Um, this is another type of, you know, what you might think of as a fraudulent institution, a bank that is set up to issue tons and tons of bills, but without much in its vault. And so, you know, there's no way they'd ever be able to redeem what they issue. And this is done sort of often in a, in a fly-by-night kind of way in order to, to, you know, to make some cash for the people issuing the money. These notes are called wildcat uh, notes or, or wildcat from wildcat banks because uh, it's said that they're, they're, uh, uh, the banks are located in um, re- remote locations, so remote that only a wildcat lives there. And I, I could imagine a, a hashtag wildcat bank uh, when you're talking about a particular type of bill that you've encountered uh, and then found out it's only circulating at a 40 or 50 percent discount uh, <laughs> because it's from such a, a bad institution. I, I, I certainly could, could imagine that happening. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. I, I learned so much about uh, paper money and how it works. And uh, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Podtextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios.